quick, what are you doing to disciple your kids? Catechids can help. Catechids is a little book with 100 simple questions and answers to help parents teach their young children the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. I wrote Catechids for my own kids, and they love it. Get Catechids on Amazon today or by going to thethink.institute. Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now, get ready to think. All right, welcome back to The Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. All right, it's after hours. We're going to do an informal, low-key, casual episode, and I'm pretty sure it's going to be a quick one, although we all know how that goes when I promise it's going to be quick. It usually isn't. But let's go ahead and get the information on the screen because we're going to be doing something kind of fun today. We're going to be talking apologetics. And we're going to be talking about the Bible's teaching on apologetics and specifically the Bible's examples of, of apologetics. And specifically, even more specifically, we're going to talk about how Jesus does apologetics. So there's all this controversy and all this debate among apologists or apologists, um, people who kind of make it their practice to defend the truth of the Christian worldview and Christian message. And the controversy circles around which apologetics approach is best. By the way, if you're watching and you can hear me, see me, please just leave me a comment. Let me know that the, the mic is working, the camera's working. Again, I'm still working with some new tech and I'm actually using my old microphone at this point, um, partially because I, I thought my new mic needed a different cord and when I went out of town, I thought I had taken it out. Um, basically, I'm, I'm a dummy and forgot that I had the right cord. But nevertheless, I'm using the old mic, uh, but uh, the camera is new and I'm using some, you know, just I'm, I, a new setup here. So let me know if you can see me and, and hear me. Um, oh, good. You guys can. Thank you. Um, awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys for watching. Brian, Noah, thank you. Christian Worldview Project. Thank you. Um, we've got to collaborate again, by the way. So, okay. Uh, you guys are watching. Thanks, Gavin. Appreciate that. Um, so we're doing, we're doing this uh, episode to really focus on how Jesus did apologetics. Because at the end of the day, isn't that what matters most? You know, we talk about evidential apologetics. And we, and we talk about all the evidence that's out there for the truth of the Christian message and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's all good because the fact is there is a lot of evidence. There's abundant evidence. Uh, we talk about classical apologetics and we talk about how the, the existence of God or the fact that God is, is irrefutably uh, provable from first causes and things like that. All good if you accept Christian presuppositions about philosophy. 
I, I think the, the same is true for evidential apologetics, that you have to assume biblical truths about evidence and the nature of truth. Um, we, we uh, If you're an existentialist, you might say, man, you know, the important thing is that Christianity is so deeply spiritually and emotionally satisfying. Totally true. Um, which accords with biblical truth. If you're a reformed epistemologist, you might say something like, yes, but belief in God is is properly basic and it's eminently warranted. Fine, all well and good. What I want to know is, how did my Lord engage in apologetics? How did he defend the faith? And I want to make the case to you that the way Jesus defended the faith was he did so presuppositionally. He actually used a, a presuppositional method, a presuppositional methodology. And so, um, oop, I just saw that I was using my, I didn't even have this mic going. Good. I'm glad you guys could hear me, but that's not going to sound good on the podcast. So I switched my mic over. Hopefully the sound quality is a little bit better now. But what I want to, what I want to talk about is the presuppositional approach of the Lord Jesus in engaging in apologetics. And I think one of the best ways to do that is by looking at a very famous encounter that's recorded in scripture. It was a true encounter. It really happened, but it was between Jesus and a group known as the Sadducees. Now, before I explain who the Sadducees are, maybe you're new to presuppositionalism. Um, In fact, do me a favor. In the comments, if you're watching right now and you're watching live on, on, uh, if you're watching on Facebook, please switch over to the YouTube channel. Uh, I am trying to get more views and subscribers on YouTube. Facebook is good, but right now YouTube is the main channel we're pushing. So if you could switch over, um, it actually makes things a little easier for you to comment, things like that. There are certain per, uh, permissions you have to enter on Facebook that you don't have to with YouTube. But um, but if you're watching, I guess if you're watching on either channel, let me know how familiar you are to presuppositionalism. Is this something that like you're very familiar with or maybe it's new for you? Maybe Maybe you've never really heard of it or you've heard of it. You're not really sure how, how it works. Um, okay, good. Um, good. Jordan uh, Ravanis of the Christian Worldview Project. I assume that that's Jordan. Um, says that he can, that the sound is better now. That's good. Thank you. Um, if you have other comments, I will get to your comments at the end. So so please go ahead, leave me a comment, leave me a um uh, question if you want. This is an informal time. This is just an informal apologetics session. We're going after hours. We're going late. And um, oh, good. It is Jordan. Awesome. Um, Kingdom in Context says he's familiar with apologetics, uh, precept. He does debates in apologetics. Awesome. That's great. Very cool. Um, Noah Despain started learning about it last summer. Excellent, man. Very cool. Um, but this is, this is a casual recording and a casual episode. So let me just kind of give you a walkthrough real quick of how the precept, how that precept works. And, uh, then we'll talk about who the Sadducees are and then we will, um, we'll get into how Jesus defended the faith. So I'll try to make it quick, but it's not going to be like five minutes or anything like that because we do have to define some of our terms. All right, all right, here we go. So first question to pull up then is, 
what is presuppositionalism? Or if you're really cool and you want to be like the cool kids, you can say hashtag that presup. All right. So what is that presup? Here's what it is. It is a method of apologetics that starts with scripture, not with the claims of the unbeliever, and takes the claims of scripture about the unbeliever, about God's existence and the knowledge thereof, and the, and the knowledge that this world gives us about God. It starts with scripture's claims first, and then using scripture as a filter, analyzes the claims of the unbeliever and even um, the apologetic encounter itself. So it starts with scripture and then goes on to, um, to, to think about how we defend the faith. So it really involves a two-step approach. And the two-step approach, it's to, it, well, it, it was really articulated by Cornelius Van Til, who's the father of presuppositionalism, but it does have its deep roots in scripture. And we're going to see that this is how Jesus argued in a minute. But if you go back to Proverbs 26, 4 and Proverbs 26, 5, here's what it says. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So you want to answer the fool. And who's the fool? The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. It's the, the one who is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, as Romans 1 talks about. It's the one who wants to live his life in opposition towards God. So, uh, my my friend, a well-known apologist, uh, I won't mention his name right now, he always says when God talks about the fool, he's not he's not calling names. He's not giving insults. This has nothing to do with your intellectual capacity. Fool is a moral category. It means someone who is opposing God. That is what a fool is. And you have to answer the fool, answer the unbeliever. Um, don't answer him according to his folly in such a way that you become like him. Don't take on his, his presuppositions. Don't take his claims at face value. Instead, answer him according to his folly so that he doesn't become wise in his own eyes. So when you're doing apologetics, when you're debating, taking that verse as a guide, those two verses as a guide, you want to hold on to your Christian presuppositions and vindicate them. Um, first Peter three fifteen talks about always being ready to give an apologetic, a reasoned defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And the goal of that is to silence them so that they may be put to shame when they slander you with regard to your faith. So you want to silence them. And the way we do that is we hold on to our biblical presuppositions and vindicate them but we show the absurdity of the non-biblical worldview. And this is all very important to lay this out because we're going to see this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus uses a presuppositional approach. And I realize that might be shocking to some of you, some of you evidentialists who watch my channel. You're going to be like, no, Joel, Jesus used evidence. Okay, you can, you can make that argument, but I want to show you in just a minute that at least in this passage, Jesus is arguing presuppositionally. So, Again, step one, vindicate the biblical worldview. Vindicate meaning show that it's true, show that it's right, show why it's uh, why it's accurate. Step two, perform a reductio, a reductio ad absurdum on the unbiblical worldview. Reductio ad absurdum is a Latin phrase that means to reduce to absurdity. To take the unbiblical worldview to its logical conclusion and show that it actually amounts to a whole heap of nonsense. 
All right. Now that is the presuppositional approach. Does that make sense in the comments? Please let me know if that's clear. Some of you just started, um, studying presup. Some of you have been studying it for years and are very familiar. Let me know if you think I accurately represented it, if you know what precept is. And if you are a little bit newer to it, let me know if that's clear. I'm happy to take a little more time and unpack that. All right. And if you have any other questions or comments or concerns, let me know that too. And I'll try to address those at the end as well. So now let's get into the passage that we're talking about today, which is Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. So I have here, this is my ESV study Bible. And um, it's actually very instrumental for me. I, I, I used to always say when I was a pastor and I would prepare sermons, I would always check my ESV study Bible because the commentary is very, very good. Whether or not ESV is... Um, whether ESV, whether or not ESV is your favorite translation, I know some of you love the CSB. I do too. That's probably my favorite in terms of everyday use. Some of you love the NASB. Brandon Scalf, I'm looking at you. Some of you are on that uh, MacArthur train and you're all about the Legacy Standard Bible. I've yet to take a look at it, but um, I'm probably going to have to get me a copy pretty soon. By the way, if you have some kind of connection or hookup with the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible, you want to give me a... Um, you want to give me a, a copy of that? Send it over my way. I'm happy to take that and review it. All right. So Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. Let's read it. And then um, <laughs> a little bit of context here first. In, okay. Matthew 20. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, here we go. Matthew 22. A uh, little bit of context. Let's talk about who the Sadducees are. I know I'm going all over the place here. Look, it's after hours. We are um, we're, we're doing this informally. Let me give you a little bit of context to who the Sadducees were. Okay, first of all, there was a very famous Sadducee that maybe you've heard of. His name was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest from the years 18 to 36 AD, which if you know your biblical history and your timelines, that's right when the Lord Jesus Christ would have been entering, you know, um, adulthood through the time when he was crucified, buried, rose from the dead, and resurrected. So Caiaphas was the high priest. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Caiaphas is actually mentioned in Scripture. So just uh, that—that's a high-ranking example of a Sadducee. And actually, most of the Sadducees were high-ranking members of society. They were wealthy, priestly, elite families. Um, the ancient historian Josephus, who wrote a lot about that time period, mentions that they were known for being unfriendly. They were cruel judges, at least they could be, cruel judges. The Sadducees pretty much ran the uh, religious establishment from an establishment perspective. Okay, the Pharisees were the were the the um, oftentimes they were successful, but they were more like successful businessmen. They were. Um, uh, they had a lot of powerful influence on the every man, like the, the, the everyday Jewish people of the time, the Sadducees, they operated in the upper echelons of society. So they were rich elite people sort of think, think generational wealth, think, um, 
uh, priestly elites, that was the Sadducees. And they were unfriendly. They were elitists. They didn't have to impress the common man because they were more focused on gaining power and status and wealth in the upper echelons of society. And for them, influence came not from the masses, but from the ruling classes, the uh, politically powerful. Okay, that's the Sadducees. Um, they, as we're going to see in a minute, they didn't believe in spirits, angels, the resurrection for them. And they also didn't believe in putting any emphasis in rewards in the hereafter, which that belief actually may have led to them not believing in the resurrection at all. So, you know, there was this common belief in those days and today as well, that what we do now echoes in eternity. It, we can earn rewards for ourselves through our conduct and our behavior and our words and our deeds here on earth. The Sadducees didn't put any emphasis on that. And so they put all their emphasis in um, receiving earthly rewards in the here and now. Okay, this is why when Jesus said elsewhere that it's hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that blew people's minds because this the, the thinking in that first century was, at least to a certain extent, your financial status and your, your, your power that you exercised in this life was somehow reflective of God's approval of you. Well, the Sadducees took that to the extreme. Um, something else that was unique about the Sadducees, they rejected the Pharisaical traditions. The Pharisees were kind of like the Roman Catholics of their day. They had the, the scripture, and then they had this separate body of authoritative doctrine that they got from their traditions. And um, the Sadducees completely rejected that. You might say, oh, so they were sort of like solar scriptura types. Not exactly. See, the reason why they rejected the Pharisees' traditions is not because they believed so much in the power of Scripture. Maybe they did, but more, more so, it was because they wanted to be able to be free to interpret Scripture however they wanted to. Okay, so they were really all about themselves. So um, they did not believe in the Pharisaical tradition, and they put so much emphasis on the Torah, which we might call the Pentateuch, um, the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses, that they actually negated the, um, the the later writings, like the Psalms, like the writings, like the prophets, okay, like the wisdom literature. They really put emphasis on the Torah to the extent that it's speculated today that they may not have even seen the later scriptures as authoritative scripture. At the very least, that, that's inconclusive, but at the very least, if you wanted to prove something to the Sadducees, you had to use the Torah to do it. And really for most Jews in those days, they would have put more emphasis on the Torah as opposed to the other um, the other categories of scripture. You know, this is still true for some today. I actually spoke with a conservative Jewish gentleman uh, when my son was in the hospital. This was a couple of years ago in 2019. And I was speaking with him about Isaiah. And we were talking about Isaiah, and it, it came out, because I was telling him about how Isaiah 53 prophesies about the Lord Jesus Christ and his suffering and his atoning death. And he was unwilling to even say that Isaiah was scripture. He thought it was important. He thought Isaiah was probably a prophet, but he was reticent to say that, that Isaiah was scripture. Okay, there's that, that's sort of Sadduceical. That's sort of how the Sadducees operated. Um, they were reluctant to really put any emphasis on the later scriptures. They wanted to focus on the Torah. So 
as a result, they didn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't think that the resurrection was taught in the Torah. They didn't think that angels were really taught in the Torah. That's debatable. Uh, it's debatable whether or not the Torah taught these things. Um, at least I think that the resurrection is debatable. But what we're going to see is they were dead wrong when it came to the resurrection. Um, it's debatable whether or not they thought uh, it, their view of angels, their view of spirits, these things are debatable. It's certainly true that they did not believe in the resurrection. So the Bible teaches in Daniel, which is a prophet who came along later during the Babylonian exile, the Bible teaches that at some point in the future, all the dead will rise and everyone will be judged and some will go off into eternal life and glory and others will go off into eternal judgment. It's a very terrifying doctrine if you're not in Christ. And let me just say right now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man that Daniel prophesied, and even Moses prophesied, um, the, the Bible is very clear that Jesus Christ is Lord, He is the Messiah, and I would urge you and invite you even right now to repent of your sins and to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again, conquering death, and is the Lord. If that's a totally new teaching and doctrine to you, not something that you've believed in yet, I'm happy to answer more questions. Um, and I'll tell you what, if you're also, if you're a Christian watching this and you would be happy to answer people's questions about that, write that in the comments as well. And and if I know you well enough and I trust you, I'll be happy to refer people to you as well. Um, I have a feeling that uh, Jordan uh, Jordan Ravanis would be happy to uh, to answer questions about the gospel and about how to become a follower of Jesus. Um, I get, I get the hunch that Noah de Spain would as well. But, um, anyway, that's, uh, again, this is informal. I'm getting off track here. Uh, no one distracts me more than, and better than I distract me, but let's get back to the, the passage at hand. So by now we have a pretty good understanding of who the Sadducees were, and we have a little bit of context for why they were approaching Jesus in the way that they did. What they wanted to show, what we're going to see in a second is that they wanted to prove that the, the, the teaching of the resurrection that is found in the later books is incoherent and, and contradictory when compared to the Torah, when compared to the teaching of the Torah. So they're going to try to pit the Torah against the prophets. They're going to try to pit Moses against Daniel and show that there's a contradiction there. Now for them, that's all well and good because they're only trying to stick with really just the Torah, at the very least, they're trying to demote Daniel, and they're trying to demote the doctrine of the resurrection. By the way, don't we have skeptics doing the very same thing today, trying to show that there's a contradiction in the Bible or, or multiple contradictions in the Bible? Just a couple of days ago, I did a podcast on eight supposed contradictions refuted, and I, I attempted to do it in eight minutes, and I failed miserably, but um, not in refuting them, but in, um, in, in sticking to eight minutes. But we still very much have um, people, skeptics, trying to disprove the Bible. And, uh, and, and so we need to be open and we need to be willing and able and ready to show why the Bible doesn't contradict itself. But anyway, that's what the Sadducees were trying to do here in Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. So let's read it. And then we'll analyze it. We'll see what's going on here. Okay, I'm reading from the ESV, and here's what it says. That same day, Sadducees came to him. 
who say that there is no resurrection. Um, later on in the book of Acts, it's clarified. They don't believe in angels or spirits either. And they asked him a question. They asked Jesus a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. All right, so there's their argument. So what do we uh, what do we make of this? What are they trying to prove here? What they're trying to do is they're appealing to the Torah, and uh, they're specifically appealing to, let's see, uh, where's that passage? I actually just read that recently. Um, they're appealing to the Leveret marriage law, and uh, that is coming from Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. Okay, now um, what they're trying to do is they're trying to put Jesus in this awkward bind where if he affirms the resurrection, he's got to affirm, and, and we know that Jesus affirms the Torah and the, the, the Sadducees do as well, then it's going to put Jesus in this awkward bind supposedly because he's going to have to affirm polyandry. What's polyandry? Well, you may have heard of polygamy. Polygamy is one man with multiple wives. Now, Jesus makes clear that that's not God's ideal. In the beginning of creation, God created Adam and Eve, male and female, one man, one woman. But as time went on, God allowed under specific circumstances for leveret marriage, where, um, where the man would... Uh, he may have had his own wife, but then if his brother had died and his wife didn't have any children, he would marry his brother's wife as well so that she could continue to produce offspring in the name of her brother. Now, that had to do with the Old Covenant land laws where um, and inheritance laws where your family was supposed to keep the same land um, and your clan was supposed to keep the same land. And it was a way of preserving the promise that God made to Abraham that his descendants would inherit a particular area of land. Okay. So under those circumstances, what ended up happening was you would end up with one man with multiple wives. Okay. Not ideal, but allowable under the law. But what you never see in the Torah or elsewhere in scripture is one woman with multiple men. That would turn the whole idea of a, a man as head of the household, head of the family, a protector, provider, um, with his wife as his helper. Um, and that's not a term of, of inferiority. Sometimes people, I had people earlier today tell me, no, no, patriarchy is wrong. Biblical patriarchy uh, is not right because it makes women inferior to men. No, it does not make women inferior. Different roles, but they're both made in God's image. And it's actually a straw man to say that patriarchy Biblical patriarchy, anyway, makes women um, uh, inferior to men. Just not true. It's never taught in Bible, although patriarchy is. Okay. But um, again, I don't want to get far afield from where we're trying to head here. So what the Sadducees are trying to show is that if Jesus affirms the resurrection, then he has to affirm polyandry, one woman, multiple men. After all, all those men had that one woman. And then even if, if those men also had multiple wives, then you've really got this tangled web of marriages, don't you? Where you've got multiple wives, 
with multiple husbands each and multiple husbands each with multiple wives and it's this tangled web of um of of marriage and so what they're trying to show jesus is that he really shouldn't believe in the resurrection because that would lead to this crazy incoherent mess they here's the crazy thing the sadducees are trying to use presuppositionalism against jesus they're trying to enter into the, the, the worldview of Jesus for the sake of argument and show that it leads to uh, incoherence. All right. And so um, let's uh, let's l- l- let's let's just put our cards on the table here, or let's put the Sadducees' cards on the table. They wanted to show that the scriptural teaching was absurd and self-contradictory. They're trying to use precept, which is. Uh, you know, kind of funny, given what we're about to show, that Jesus uses precept. Um, let's pause here for a few comments. First of all, Noah, thank you for saying that you are open to explaining the gospel. Um, you've you've interacted with enough of our videos. I, I have a pretty good sense of where you're coming from. Um, I would be fine referring someone to you. Uh, Brian Crossan, thanks for your comment. You say that we even have Christians that do the same. Yeah, they try to show that there are contradictions in Scripture. Absolutely, we do. Yeah, quote-unquote Christians, right. And of course, uh, we would reject that there are any contradictions in Scripture. Uh, I'm actually reading a book. Um, let me show you the book that I'm reading about. It, it technically deals with the sufficiency of Scripture, but it also hits really hard on the reliability of Scripture as well. One second. All right, this is the book. It's called it's called Scripture Alone. Put it in the light there. Scripture Alone. This is by Dr. James White, and um, it's uh, uh, so far it's a great book. I'm two chapters in, so I'll let you know. But I got it because I got into this debate with some Muslims who are trying to uh, disprove um, Scripture uh, appropriately enough. That's why I'm reading it. Um, Kingdom in Context points out that Jesus also chastises Nicodemus, a Pharisee, for not knowing the details of the resurrection promised to Israel believers in John 3, 3 through 8. Thanks for pointing that out, Kingdom in Context. Larry Dolendi is watching. Um, Larry, we've been good friends now for seven, eight years. I will always refer to you as Larry Dolendi, never just Larry. Don't ask me why. Um, Kingdom in Context says Fuller Seminary in California teaches the Old Testament is full of sexism and patriarchal prejudice against women. These seminaries really need to learn the Father's law better. It's painful. I agree. And then Kingdom in Context um, also uh, has has more to say about Scripture and how it fits together. And um, let's see. Oh, Larry says, I clearly don't have enough books. And then he put a laughing, crying face. Uh, Dr. White is an excellent choice. Well, I, I, I agree. I don't have enough books. Um, I, I, I actually have some more coming from Amazon. Lord willing, they'll be here, uh, they'll be here soon. And so uh, Kingdom in Context also says he can interview me on his channel. It would help me grow my YouTube audience. That'd be great. I'd love to. Um, I don't know much about your channel, Kingdom in Context, but um, I'm happy to, sometimes people do like to have me on to talk about uh, apologetics or um, the sovereignty of God or the, 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 the problem of evil and pain and suffering, just given my own story, things like that. All right, good. Let's get back to the, uh, the text, shall we? How does Jesus respond? Now, the Sadducees wanted to show that the scriptural teaching was absurd and self-contradictory. 
How did Jesus respond? Well, Jesus uses that precept right back in their face, and he does it like a true boss, like a true apologetic um, master, which, of course, he is. And here's what Jesus does. Uh, here's what here's how Jesus does it. Look at verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, I like in Matthew's telling of this story, he says, you are wrong. In, is it Luke's gospel? He says, it might be Mark's gospel. Uh, he says, um, are you not wrong because you understand neither the the scriptures nor the power of God? I like when Jesus sometimes, um, he blows people out of the water using a question. Um, Jesus asked over 300 questions throughout the course of his ministry that's recorded. He directly answered three. Something very powerful happens when you refute an objection with a question. It's brilliant. Uh, and Jesus was very good at it. All right, I'm seeing more comments coming in. Um, if you're listening to this later on the podcast, thank you for listening. And let me just encourage you, if you want to catch one of these videos live, one of these episodes live, watch it on our YouTube channel. We go live consistently Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Central, but then we do all these other episodes at other random times. You have to follow our, our uh, YouTube channel um, or our Facebook page, and then you can be alerted to when we go live. So what does Jesus do now? How is Jesus refuting the um, the objections of the Sadducees? Well, he straight up puts them on blast. He tells them that they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, here we have Jesus setting up a two-step approach. They don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. He's going to start by showing them that they don't know the power of God. Then he's going to prove to them that they don't know the scriptures. And that is going to be the presuppositional two-step approach. Step one then occurs in verses 29 through 30. Look what he says. He says, in verse 30, he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. In other words, hey, Pharisees, you're accusing the Bible of being, in, I'm sorry, Sadducees, of being in, uh, in contradiction with itself. Moses is contradicting Daniel. Daniel's contradicting Moses. You can't believe them both, according to you. But where, where in the Torah or the prophets or the writings does it ever say that they're going to be married in the resurrection? Where does it say that? It says that they'll go on to everlasting glory. It says that they'll they'll have eternal life. Where does it say they'll be married? Um, doesn't Moses teach that doesn't the very, now I'm, this is me extrapolating on this a little bit, but doesn't the very leveret marriage law teach that the marriage contract is nullified by death? And now the Sadducees, if Jesus had said that, the Sadducees might say, yeah, but if the soul continues on after death, if the spirit continues on after death, then the person hasn't really died. And therefore the marriage contract isn't actually nullified. But that doesn't follow because according to the law of Moses, the marriage contract is nullified at death. But what Jesus is about to show, that doesn't 
entail that the spirit doesn't continue to live, to, to live on. See, for the Sadducees, they were so focused on this life, they actually negated the existence of spirits. They threw the whole baby out with the bathwater. They didn't want to believe the Pharisaical traditions, so they threw out angels, spirits, resurrection, and all these essential doctrines that the that the Old Testament teaches. In fact, they were willing to split apart Torah and prophet in order to hold to what essentially amounted to their own uh, body of tradition. And it was an unbiblical body of tradition. So Jesus straight up blows them up. He blows them out of the water by showing, look, the biblical worldview is not incoherent. The, the, the resurrection does not make a mess out of the, out of the Leveret marriage laws because in the resurrection, there is no marriage. They're like the angels in heaven. Now Jesus doesn't say they're like the sons of God or, or Jesus uses his words carefully. He says the angels in heaven. Why? Because there were spiritual beings that in the past had fallen from their position and had taken human wives. Go back to Genesis. Um, I know I disagree with some people on this. I'm, I'm with Michael Heiser on this, that there are quote unquote angels. They weren't really angels because angel means messenger, but there were sons of God, lowercase g gods, who had previously left their position of authority. Um, Peter talks about this in one of his epistles. But Jesus says that in the resurrection, we will be like the sons, uh, we will be like the angels of heaven, the ones that didn't fall, the ones specifically that didn't take wives. We will be like them. Now, is there any contradiction, therefore, in Moses giving the leveret marriage laws and Daniel saying that there will be a resurrection? No. The resurrection does not create a contradiction. The, con the supposed contradiction is completely gone. It's gone. It's evaporated. It's gone. Because there is no contradiction now between Moses and Daniel. So Jesus is vindicating the, the biblical worldview, the truly biblical worldview. And now he's going to go into their worldview. He's going to go into their house and he's going to tie them up in knots. He's going to go into their basement like a good home inspector. And he's going to show all the cracks in their foundation. And he's going to say, this house cannot stand. This house is incoherent. This this position, this platform is totally, uh, totally self-contradictory. What, what um, Alvin Plantinga might, might call self-referentially incoherent. All right. So let's see how Jesus does it. Jesus goes in and performs a reductio ad absurdum on their understanding of the Torah. Oh, this is so good. Look at... Verse 32, verse 32. No, no, verse 31. Here's what he says. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Oh, that's so good, isn't it? What was said to you by God? Hey, you Sadducees, you believe in the Torah, right? You believe that that's God speaking to you? Have you not even read it? This is supposed to be your area of expertise. The Sadducees ran. Do you know that the Sadducees ran the temple sac, like the uh, the temple um, market that was going on in the um, in the temple courts, the court of the Gentiles? That was a Sadducee-run market. That means that the Sadducees. So when Jesus went in and cleared out the temple, he was clearing out the the Sadducees' place of business. 
those scoundrels were were uh, defrauding people. These people were wretched, but their whole shtick was they're supposed to know the Torah and the temple sacrifices and what's required, and 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 Moses is their homeboy, and Jesus goes right into their house and messes them up and goes. Have you ever even read the very Torah you supposedly believe? See, Jesus is just annihilating them with a question. Oh, it's so good. Have you even read it? Here's what he says. Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead but of the living. And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Oh, this is so good. Jesus is making a reference, not to Daniel, but to Exodus. Let's see, where is he making a reference? Exodus chapter three, verse six. In Exodus three, six, right in the heart of the Torah, it's God speaking to Moses. And what he says is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What that means is that at the time when the Lord Yahweh, the great I am, was speaking to Moses, at that time, he was, so put yourself in that timeline. If you're there with with, with um, Moses, that means that while you're hearing the Lord say these words, at that time, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you might go, well, sure, it's Old Testament, right? So Abraham, Moses, they all kind of lived at the same time, right? No. Abraham had been dead for centuries when God said this to Moses. Centuries. that He was gone. Isaac, gone. Kaput. Uh, uh, Jacob, aka Israel, gone. If the Spirit as the Sadducees believed, doesn't um, doesn't continue on after death, then God's statement would have been incoherent. It would have been nonsense. He would have not been, he would have had to have used the past tense. I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course, I'm not anymore because they don't exist anymore. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Sadducees believed that the Torah was God's word. It was revealed by God. They believed that Moses was a prophet. That was their whole thing is they were trying to pit Moses against Daniel. So now they can't go, well, Moses could have been wrong. No, um, they believed that that was God speaking. So Jesus goes right into their house and says, at the very moment when God, when, when God the Father, when Yahweh's, actually, I think it was it was probably Jesus speaking at that time, when he spoke those words, he was describing a state of affairs in which the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were still living somewhere. Not, not. Um, let me say this, they still existed. They were still extant. Their spirits were still alive. Even though their bodies had gone, even though their bodies were in the dirt and their bones were moldering in the grave, God could not have been their God at that time unless they still existed. They were in the realm of the dead. They were in Hades. They were in Sheol. So Jesus goes right into the worldview of this, the Sadducees. 
and using the Torah that they claim to believe in wrecks their worldview, destroys it, blows them out of the water. Now, let's take a, a minute here and let's look at a couple of context uh, comments. Larry Dolendi says, Vantillian two-step, my favorite dance. Yeah, but after this, we're going to have to change it up. We're going to have to call it uh, the um, the Jesus two-step or something. Because although Van Til did articulate it, this is what Jesus uses. This is his approach. And what I want to do is uh, I'm actually working on a book right now. And I want to show all the instances where Jesus and the apostles use this um, um, approach. Noah points out, Noah Despain points out, he says, I read several commentaries when preaching on Proverbs 26, 3, and 4 that uh, that pointed out Jesus's precept answer in answering foolishness by pointing out their folly. Yes, very true. Although I think it's Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that. And then Kingdom in Context says, the promise to Abraham was for he and his descendants to inherit the land of promise and inhabit that land forever. Have to be alive for that to happen. Resurrection is assumed all through Torah. Good. The souls, uh, Kingdom in Context continues, the souls are in Sheol awaiting resurrection on the day of the Lord. See 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 and Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. Uh, yes, Although kingdom in context, um, I don't know if this is what you're saying, but they're not there now. Now, currently, they are no longer in Sheol. They are, I believe scripture is clear, they are now in heaven. They are in the heavens with Jesus to be absent from the bodies, to be present from the, uh, present with the Lord. So I believe that it, there was a transfer um, of residency from Sheol or Hades to um, uh, uh, the heavens where the spirits who depart who are believers, I believe that they do now go to be with the Lord. Okay, but that's, again, uh, I don't want to get too off track. So what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? Jesus performs a reductio ad absurdum on their worldview and reduces it to absurdity. I love it. Now, what are some parallel situations today? Let's bring this home. All right. So you're like, Joel, how do I use this today? W what's a parallel situation? Well, I already mentioned it earlier. There are those who want to show that there are contradictions in Scripture and that therefore the Bible can't be the Word of God. What they're doing then is they're doing two things. One, they're saying that uh, that that the the Bible is incoherent, and so step one for us is then to show that there is no contradiction in Scripture. All right, so so we can do that. Um, now, some people don't like to do this move because they don't they don't like to do Bible studies with unbelievers, and they'll say they don't have a basis for a, a contradiction being a problem in the first place. So I'm not going to argue contradictions with them, um, but. I I I don't go that route. I think it's okay. I think it's perfectly fine to show that um, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. I think that's what Jesus does. And what Jesus does is I think what we can do. I think we can show the Bible doesn't actually contradict itself. That's what I was attempting to do in my other podcast video, uh, uh, podcast episode, where I refuted eight supposed contradictions in eight minutes. Look, here's the thing. You never have to be afraid of the Bible contradicting itself. The Bible is the Word of God. God, who authored Scripture, 
does not make mistakes. God is the basis for logic in the first place. Now, this brings us to step two. So step one, vindicate scripture. Step two, show that the unbelieving worldview doesn't have a leg to stand on. How? By entering into it for the sake of argument and refuting it by performing a reductio ad absurdum, reducing it to absurdity internally. For the sake of argument, let's say that God wasn't real, okay? Because if the Bible contradicts itself, then God didn't author the Bible, and therefore the God of Scripture, the triune God of Scripture doesn't exist, right? Well, if God didn't exist, then what's grounding the laws of logic? Because logic makes perfect sense within a biblical worldview. But when you take away God as the absolute, immaterial, universal, knowable, um, triune basis for, and, and presupposition and precondition for logic, you cannot have the three fundamental laws of logic. The law of non-contradiction, which says that A is not not A. The law of identity, which says A is A, and the law of excluded middle, which says that A or not A, nothing in between. There is no neutrality between those two. Well, you've got three fundamental laws of logic, and you've got three persons of the Trinity. Each person of the Trinity is equally ultimate. Um, you've got unity and diversity there, with none of them being primary to the others, logically speaking. And um, and, I, and I'm not intending to contradict the creeds, which talk about eternal generation. I'm talking about like it's not like the father came first um, and then produced the son or something like that. In the same way, the laws of logic, it's not like the law of identity came first and then produced the other two. Now, I'm not drawing a direct parallel between those two triads or um, the trinity and the triad of logic. What I'm saying is the triune God of Scripture can ground something like logic, which has unity in diversity and diversity in unity in a way that the Muslim conception of God or the Unitarian conception of God cannot. So on what basis is the unbelieving worldview adherent accusing my worldview, the biblical worldview, of being incoherent? Logic is not a problem well, let me say this. Logic is not a thing in an unbelieving worldview. Logic is a big problem for an unbelieving worldview because they don't have a basis for it. So do you see what I'm doing? I'm entering into their worldview and saying, if it were true, you would not have a basis for logic in the first place. I'm trying to argue like Jesus. All right. So, uh, okay. Kingdom in context is now saying all souls are perfected together at the same time together on the day of the Lord at the last trumpet. See Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. Okay. Um, what that's talking about, uh, and this is going to get pretty far afield and, and okay. He's saying, yeah, all souls of believers. I understand. Um, that cannot mean that when we die, we don't go to heaven to be with Jesus. And the reason why is because the apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And so unless you're believing in some sort of soul sleep in which the soul or the spirit stays within the body in, and molders in the ground until the resurrection, um, uh, which is which would be refuted by the idea that uh, you are gathered to your fathers in the Old Testament, as an example, um, meaning your, your, your spirit goes somewhere. Um, and leaves the body. Unless you're positing a, a form of soul sleep, then um, that it, it can't mean that. Instead, what it what it means is that 
they, meaning Old Testament saints, were not going to be perfected without us. They went to Hades, they went to Sheol. But now in the New Covenant era, they are now in heaven, and we now go to heaven, we are together, um, but that's not the same thing as the bodily resurrection. Um, so, that being said, uh, one of the things that you and I would agree with, kingdom in context, is that the soul endures, at least I hope, I believe, I think that's what Jesus is saying here, I think you agree with that, the soul endures after death. And Jesus proves that presuppositionally. And we can argue presuppositionally, and when we do so, we are imitating our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Now, um, let's take a couple of questions. Actually, we just have one question that I haven't addressed yet, and that is Gavin Hill. Uh, here's what Gavin says. At what point would you not do so? Would you not argue presuppositionally? The Sadducees held scripture as God's word. For example, if an unbeliever provides a supposed contradiction, A, you answer A, and then they present B, and so on. Um, okay. Uh, Kingdom and Context is still giving me more... Uh, more argumentation. Uh, Kingdom and context, we're going to have to put that on hold, man, because uh, maybe we can talk about that on your channel. I'm happy to. But uh, I got to address Gavin. For example, okay, so, right. So an unbeliever, um, they can just keep throwing contradictions at you. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, I get that. And at some point you get into this. Um, so he's saying, at what point would you not continue to answer contradictions? Well, I, I would say you only need to do it once. Because if you're doing it correctly, you can show, look, that wasn't a contradiction. And you don't have a basis, Mr. Unbeliever, for contradictions being a problem in the first place. See, what I always do then is I always add a third step. And I think you can prove this biblically as well, although not from this particular passage. I, I always add a gospel invitation. And I always say, now, the, the, the same Bible that not only answers your question, but provides a basis for the question in the first place, meaning provides a basis for logic, is the same Bible that says your unbelief is sin and the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Repent and believe the gospel. I don't always make it that succinct, but the idea is I had a third step. And so now we're back to talking about the gospel. And if they want to go, but there's another contradiction. I've already shown them, or I should say, they've already seen, at least they should have, that their worldview can't make sense of contradictions in the first place. So on what basis do they do they um, argue that a contradiction is a problem? Um, the, they could say, uh, yeah, um, yeah, but look at all these other contradictions, you know? Oh, okay. Contradictions are only problems within my worldview as a biblical Christian. And in my same worldview, the only way that there could be a, a problem with the Bible in a, a logical sense is if my worldview allowed for Scripture to have logical contradictions in it. So it would only be a problem if there were not and could not be a logical explanation for every contradiction in Scripture. But 
um, in my worldview, there is necessarily an explanation for every apparent contradiction, which means there is no, um, which, which means this. Here, this is how my friend Eli Ayala describes it. What he says is this. If it's even possible that there is a refutation for every purported contradiction and an explanation for it, then there's no problem with the biblical worldview. If it's even possible that there's an explanation, then you don't have a necessary contradiction, which means there is no hole in the biblical worldview. There is no um, logical problem, which means the good news is that means that logic can continue to exist or, you know, we can still appeal to logic. The bad news for the unbelievers, now he's got to repent and believe the gospel. So what we're doing is we're pitting worldviews against one another, and the biblical worldview does not admit for contradictions in Scripture. Now, I'm speaking philosophically here, but empirically speaking, when you're looking at the text, there actually is a an answer for every supposed contradiction. Um, there, there actually is. So it's borne out in actual practice as you study Scripture. But if there's even a possible answer, then there is no problem. There's only a problem if it's impossible that there's an answer for every supposed contradiction. Um, I, I, I hope that's clear. Let me know. Noah, let me know if that's, or who, who asked that question? Um, oh, Gavin, I'm sorry. Gavin, let me know if that's clear. Um, and now, okay, we got another question from, or another comment from Kingdom in Context. I think this is getting back to Sheol. Check the full context. Paul isn't superseding the details of the resurrection in that passage. First Thessalonians says the believers are raised from the ground. They're not pulled down from heaven. Uh, actually, that's not true. It does say that um, we will meet him in the air, but the dead in Christ will rise first, but Jesus will also come with his holy ones, with his saints. So what you have is the bodies are rising, the the um, spirits are coming from Jesus, uh, sorry, with Jesus from heaven. Jesus is coming with his holy ones. So you've got to read that full passage. He's coming with his saints. Um, there's no verse where Jesus changed the details, Sheol or the resurrection. I, I think you mean, so kingdom and context is continuing. If you're listening on audio, he says, there's no verse where Jesus changed the details of Sheol or the resurrection. Well, that's actually not true because um, Jesus authorized Paul as an apostle. And Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that, that actually is not true. Uh, Noah says, can you give an example of using precept on other religions such as Mormonism? I have done this, Noah, but I would refer you to the videos of Jeff Durbin. Jeff Durbin has a lot of videos debating Mormons. And what he does is he goes into their sacred documents and pulls out quotes from Joseph Smith that contradict the Book of Mormon. And he does it masterfully. He does it well. He does it competently. And he refutes Mormonism, uh, Latter-day Saint theology, internally, using a reductio ad absurdum. So uh, he does a great job. That would be where I would I would point you to. Um, all right, what do we have? What do we have? Um, 
We have some more comments in here. Noah Despain says, oh, wait, 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 wait. We're getting ahead of ourselves here. Okay, let's see. Noah Despain says, that's the beauty of presup. It is apologetics and evangelism at the same time. Yes. Nothing to add to that. Fully agree. Kingdom in Context says, that's right, Think Institute. All, quote, contradictions, end quote, I've been given simply reveal the atheist or agnostic posing the, quote, contradiction, end quote, doesn't actually know the scriptures. Malformed questions. 100%. Correct. And that's what Jesus is doing here as well. So you could say, yeah, the Sadducees, they believed that the scriptures were the word of God. Yeah, but not really because they didn't believe that they had a, uh, they, they didn't believe that the prophetic teaching on the resurrection were actually true. So Jesus um, identifies that they have a malformed question and refutes it. Um, Gavin says, that clears it up, brother. Thanks. Good. Praise the Lord. Glad I can help. Okay. Kingdom in Context says, that's why I added Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. The spirits of the righteous rise from the earth, from Sheol. The holy ones who come with Jesus are warrior angels. See Matthew 24, <clears throat> 29 through 31. No, I, I, I'm not saying he doesn't come with the angels, but he does come with the saints. He does come with the, the, um, the dead in Christ. Um, because to be absent from the body is to be present from present with the Lord. So you can't, unless you're, unless you're saying kingdom in context that you believe that the soul um, Noah says, oh, oh, okay, Noah, so you've watched, um, you've watched the Jeff Durbin videos. Yes, he's, he's very much a presuppositionalist. He's going into the biblical, uh, the unbiblical worldview for the sake of argument and refuting it. Yes. Um, he might not always follow a, a strict two-step method, you know, one, then two, two, then one. It doesn't really matter which step you use first, by the way, but he's, he's doing it presuppositionally. Uh, anytime where you're refuting an, an unbiblical worldview, from within, you're doing, you're engaging in presuppositional apologetics. All right, let's see. Um, man, we've got a lot of questions coming in. This is great. Kingdom in Context says, Paul wasn't given authority to change entire events of the day of the Lord as prophe prophesied by all the prophets, including Jesus. Just saying. Well, okay, so is Paul not an apostle? Um, is Paul not writing uh, scripture? I mean, kingdom and context, you're going down some dangerous roads here, man. Uh, unless you're saying that what Paul wrote is false, you know, we're going to have to find a, a way of theologically explaining these things to make Scripture fit with Scripture. All right? So, um, again, I'm I'm trying to explain these things biblically. You're saying Paul wasn't given that authority. I'm not saying Paul changed the uh, the events. What I'm saying is you need to interpret those events in light of what the apostolic teaching is. Okay. Uh, Aziz Hazanov says, what are the crossing points of apologetics slash evangelism with eschatological position? By the way, what is your stand on eschatology? Well, the crossing points are probably numerous and abundant. The reason why is because eschatology is is something that is going to impact everything that you do. 
um, my personal eschatology, I, I'm an optimistic amillennialist. Can't get to post-mill. I don't think it's biblical. I've got a lot of friends that are post-mill and they're trying to win me over and this and that. I've got friends that are pre-mill too, and I like to make fun of them. But um, I make fun of them because I came out of pre-mill and I, you always look down on where you came from. You know, a prophet has never uh, has respect in his hometown. I don't know if that applies here. But um, the, 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 let me say this. You can be a, a, a presuppositionalist as an amillennialist, as a post-millennialist, um, as a historic pre-mill, I would think as a dispy as well. I don't, I don't know why you couldn't as a dispensationalist. So it's not like this apologetic, um, you know, uh, hinges on a particular eschatology, but, um, you know, for me, I think it's consistent with optimistic amillennialism because that's what I believe the Bible teaches. In other words, I do believe we're in the millennium now. I believe Jesus, I believe the millennium, uh, the thousand years is a figurative number. I believe Jesus is reigning now. I don't merely believe that his reign is in heaven. So I think that puts me at odds with Sam Storms, who's a prominent um, amillennialist. I, um, I'm also optimistic, not pessimistic in the sense that I do expect the gospel to work. I do expect, um, all of Christ's elect to be saved. And I expect that we will see the number of elect, you know, in, well, not the number of elect increase, but the number of saved to increase. Um, I'm perfectly fine. Now, maybe this, I have this in common with like, like pre-mill people, but I do expect there to be a lot of Jewish people who come to faith. Um, I, I, I don't believe that all existing Jewish people will, you know, all become believers at one time. I think that um, the way that all Israel is saved is it's Jewish people and Gentiles making up the Israel of God. But, um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I believe that the gospel works. And so when I engage in apologetics, I'm doing so believing, at least I should do so believing I'm not always consistent in this, if I'm honest about my own heart, that the gospel is going to bear fruit. Disciples are going to be made. And, um, so, you know, is that an eschatological thing? Yeah, somewhat. It's also a great commission thing. Um, I believe that the Great Commission is meant to be fulfilled, and I think it will be fulfilled. In one sense, I think it has been fulfilled in the sense that, um, in a, in, a, in a certain sense, all the nations have heard. Anyway, I'm getting I'm getting tired here. It's you know it's uh, it's 10:46. I got to wrap things up. Um, a lot more comments here. Kingdom in Context says it's all good, brother. We can have you on if you're willing to talk about these topics. Much love. Sure, let's do it. Uh, shoot me an email, actually. If you would, Kingdom in Context, you can email me at, let's see, email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. Let me get that up on the screen. One second. Uh, I should probably stop giving away my email address because I got this spammer. I got this scammer who emailed me. I won't tell you what he said in the email. But let's just say he made a bunch of accusations against me and then tried to blackmail me into sending him Bitcoin. This this really happened. 
Uh, thankfully, I knew the accusations were completely false, but they were the kind of accusation that you could probably email maybe even some of you. I, I'm sorry for God's grace that I, I was not guilty of these accusations, but um, he tried to blackmail me and uh, and I knew the accusations were false. So obviously I didn't send him any money. But um, anyway, that's my email for better or worse, because I better stay on that straight and narrow, God willing, uh, the think.institute at gmail.com. All right. Uh, so shoot me an email. Appreciate it. And let's see where are we at. Uh, Noah Despain says, thanks for the clarification. You're welcome. Gavin Hill says, oh, okay. They're, they're talking about, uh, Jeff Durbin in the con comments. All right. Kingdom in context says, of course, Paul is an apostle. I'm saying Paul isn't saying what you think he's saying. Look at the entire chapter of where you're pulling that statement, statement in second Corinthians five, eight. Okay. Listen, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Noah Despain says dat amil, hashtag dat amil, amen. And uh, he shares an eschatology uh, with me. He thinks that uh, Noah Despain says, I think precept is dependent somewhat on a reformed soteriology though, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's more consistent with the reformed soteriology. Sure. Yeah, because we believe that it's it's that salvation is of the Lord, purely of the Lord. So, look, um, we engage in apologetics because the Apostle Peter tells us to. And and that's the example of Christ and, and the teaching of Scripture. But we're not trying to, like, win people over through our argumentation. We're trying to shut the mouths of unbelievers, put, their, put them to shame for their accusations. And in many ways, at many times, that can clear a path for the gospel. But our goal is always to vindicate Christ's teaching, to vindicate Scripture. And, um, and to uh, let God's Word do the have its effect and let the Holy Spirit of God, you know, uh, make, make this, we don't, we don't save anybody. We can win souls in the sense that, um, we plant the seed of the gospel or maybe we water the seed, but it's God who gives the growth. So yes, that's a very reformed way of looking at things in the sense that it's Calvinistic. Okay, man, the comments keep coming. Aziz Hazanov says, what is your difficulty with the post-mill position? I don't have a difficulty with it. I just don't think it's biblical. I mean, no one's ever been able to show me that it's biblical. I've studied scripture a long time. I don't see it in scripture. Um, especially the old golden age theory of, you know, uh, uh, like we're not like post-mill, like classically speaking is we're, we're not even in the millennium yet. We're going to hit this tipping point where the millennium will start and then Jesus will come at the end of it. I have a lot in common with post-millies uh, in the sense that, um, well, like modern post-mill types, I mean, they would say that we're in the millennium. I don't have a lot of difference with, with those guys uh, other than uh, maybe I'm a little bit more pessimistic in, in terms of how far I think the gospel is going to get in terms of reforming society. You know, I'm not looking forward to a new Christendom simply because I wasn't such a fan of the old Christendom. Um, I think it was it was better than a lot of people realize. But, you know, man, I'm a Baptist. They used to drown me. They used to burn me at the stake. They used to uh, 
uh, you know, uh, drive me out of cities and things like that. And I'm talking Christians, man, Presbyterians and and uh, Anglicans. So I'm not like, do I do I wish that more people were Christians? Absolutely. Would I love to see every member of Congress and the executive branch and the judicial branch become a, a follower of Jesus Christ? Of course. But uh, I'm not. I don't believe that I'm guaranteed anything like that from Scripture. So I, I I believe the gospel works. I just I don't maybe I I just uh, I don't see the same promises as a, a post milly would see. Uh, Kingdom in context says is the New Jerusalem literal or figurative? Oh well, I don't know. I don't know. I go back and forth. I used to think it was literal. Now I think it might be referring to the church. Um, in which case we are the New Jerusalem. It is described as a bride. The church is the bride. Um, but then again, you know, maybe it's literal. I one time calculated the volume of the New Jerusalem. It very well could be literal. It says that it comes out of the heavens. And um, it doesn't say that it stops on the earth or lands on the earth. So it could very well be, uh, you know, in orbit around the earth like a satellite. Um it doesn't say that the sun and the moon go away. It just says that in Jerusalem, there is no need for sun or moon because it has its own illuminating uh, illumin source of illumination from the glory of God. So it could be literal. Um, it could be um, could be figurative for the church. I don't know. Um, Aziz says, in my first question, I didn't mean method of apologetics and eschatological position. I meant eschatological position to the apologetics evangelism in general. Uh, not quite picking up what you're putting down. I meant eschatological position to the apologetics evangelism in general. Um, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not following. Maybe if you could... Clarify that again. I don't quite understand. Um, Kingdom in Context says, respect to you at Think Institute. These live Q&A sessions are not easy. No, they're not. Thanks for recognizing that. Um, okay. Aziz says, can you comment on the word persuade in 2 Corinthians 5.11 in light of the role of the Holy Spirit in the regeneration of man? Ooh, <clears throat> is that the passage where he says, oh boy, give me the whole passage. Will you somebody look up that passage and, and post it in the comments? Um, let's, let's look it up. Okay. This is, this is just turning into an ask me anything, which I'm okay with. I have, a, I have six more minutes that I'm going to go spend time with my wife. Um, second Corinthians five eleven says, what does it say? Man, what, you expect me to have this memorized? What do you think I am? James White? All right, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your, con uh, to your conscience. All right, let's see. Uh, we persuade others. Okay, sure. Um, you know, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my quick and dirty response here, Aziz. Um, have you ever convinced someone that Jesus is Lord? You might say, no, that's only the Holy Spirit. Yes, true. 
But have you ever persuaded someone? Have you ever persuaded someone? Even, um, okay, let's see. Let me, let me look at the broader context here. Oh, my goodness. Do you see which, this passage, 2 Corinthians 5, is the one that talks about our heavenly dwelling. If our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not, <clears throat> not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this reason we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. This is very apropos to what we're talking about here. Um, it's talking about the resurrection, actually. Okay. Um, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Kingdom in context, this is your passage. You got to read this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Very appropriate passage to what we're talking about. Very. I wish the Sadducees had read this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance, not about what is in the heart. For we are beside ourselves, if we are beside ourselves, he's talking about his role as an apostle, I believe. And... um I think he's vindicating his own role as an apostle here. But however he means it, because, you know, Paul's apostleship was always coming under fire. There were the super apostles. There were there, there were those who um, were trying to you sort of usurp his apostleship as he was in prison or discredit him because he was in prison. But I think however you read this, how whatever it means to persuade, um, if you've ever persuaded anyone of anything, spiritual spiritual truths are only understood by spiritual people so how is that persuasion happening well it might be happening through you via you know um you as your argumentation as a means but it's god pursuing his ends through you so even like even evangelism um, when I was out on the street in New Orleans last month, I had the incredible honor of leading a young lady to Christ along with two other brothers who were out there with us. And so, like, did I lead her to Christ? Yes. Like, did we lead her to Christ? Yes, absolutely. But does that mean that because we did it that God wasn't somehow involved in that? No, of course not. God is the one accomplishing the rebirth, the new birth, and he's doing it through us. He pursues his ends through means. And that means is the proclamation of the gospel and the application of apologetics. Man, that was a long-winded response to a, a probably a, a simple question. All right. Let's see. Um, <clears throat> okay. Thank you, Gavin and Aziz, for posting that. Um, you, you found the scriptures. Okay. Aziz, hopefully that was helpful, brother. Uh, he says, Aziz says, I'm tired of hearing, quote, we don't insist 
or force, etc., in evangelism. I understand there's a place not to force in the sense of not pushing in unhealthy way, but there is persuasion based on that passage. Yes, of course, yes. Yes, we persuade. We do, we, we, we persuade and God persuades. Man, if you're a Calvinist, you're a compatibilist. So you're working and God is working. We have freedom to operate. We're responsible, and yet God is um, God is is sovereign in that. All right. Um, how does biblical persuasion look like? Well, I hopefully it looks a lot like what I've just been showing you in Matthew chapter twenty-two. Hopefully, it looks like presuppositionalism. Hopefully, it looks like uh, Proverbs twenty-six four and five. Not answering the fool according to his folly, lest you become like him answering the fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. Noah says, well, he said something nice. He gave me a compliment. Thank you, Noah. Praise the Lord. Um, hey, this is a great time to ask you to subscribe, like the channel, hit the bell so that you get all the, um, the updates, and follow us on Facebook. We are at, uh, on Facebook, we are Facebook slash the Think Institute, all one word. On YouTube, we are youtube.com slash Think Institute. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, which I hate. At um, We are Think Inst on Twitter. We're on um, Gab, which I also hate, but not as much. We are Think Institute on um, Gab. We're on MeWe, which I have no opinion on. That is uh, Think Institute on MeWe. What else? Hey, if you're on the Uversion Bible app, follow us on there, Think Institute. And um, all right, one more comment from Kingdom in Context. He says, yes, LOL. The heavenly dwelling is what we're taken into at the resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19 through 21, Matthew 13, 30. It's the new Jerusalem. All very literal. It's the promised land. Um, okay. Well, no, the heavenly dwelling is our resurrected bodies, um, not the New Jerusalem. So, nope. Disagree. Um, <clears throat> I think in, in context there, Paul's talking about bodies. He's not talking about the New Jerusalem. You have to look at it in context. The immediate context um, says... It's talking about bodies. So nope, disagree. But happy to talk with you. And and listen, when I disagree with you, I'm doing it as a, I believe, a brother in Christ. I don't think you're a heretic. I don't think you're a, an apostate. Um, hopefully you would extend to me the same expectation. Maybe you wouldn't. I I know I'm a believer, but um, but we do get things wrong sometimes. And if I'm wrong, I'm happy to be shown. But you're gonna have to show me from scripture. You're gonna have to show me um have to show me from the word of Christ. Okay? Let faith come by hearing and hearing come from the come through the word of Christ. Just as it says in Romans 10 and kingdom in context says Romans 10:14 how can they believe unless they hear? Amen. Thanks for your evangelism efforts brother. Okay, thank you kingdom in context. I appreciate that. Gavin, where Gavin is asking where else did Jesus use that precept? What a great question. I'm going to work on answering that question. I've already got one other instance. No, I take that back. Yes, I've got one other instance where Jesus used precept. And I've got 
at least one that Paul used. And I am going to be detailing these in my book, which I'm working on writing right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast episode is because this is sort of practice for articulating this because I'm going to write this all up in my book. Um, the, the goal of my book that I'm writing is I want to establish an accessible biblical, um, let's see, accessible biblical, and I, I need to, I'm a good student of John Frame, so I need like a third one. Um, practical, maybe? Yeah, we'll say practical. Accessible biblical practical method of uh, presuppositional apologetics. And part of that is going to be identifying and analyzing the examples in scripture where Jesus and the apostles use presuppositionalism, uh, use a presuppositional approach. So stay tuned. I plan to do more podcast episodes about it. All right. Get in touch with me by going to thethink.institute at gmail.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and get all of the Think Institute network. Did you guys know that we have a network? We have a podcast network and you're watching it right now. You're listening to it right now. So um, you can get all of our episodes by going to tinyurl.com slash thinknetwork and get all of our podcast shows. Um, I've got, uh, you've, we've got um, Answer Anyone. We've got Worldview Wednesday, The Think Podcast. We've got Sons of Thunder with my brother Parker. And uh, by the way, check out Parker's Pensees if you've never listened to that. Very, very great podcast. Similar to what we do here, but more philosophical. He gets a, a, a different kind of thinker on his show. But they have great – I mean, if you like Joe Rogan, you probably like me. You probably will like Parker. Um, let me see what else. Kingdom in Context is still going hard. It does not say what you think it says, brother. It is not talking about the New Jerusalem. It's talking about your new body. I'm sorry. When you die, I've got, I've got bad news for you. When you die, you're going to go and be with the Lord Jesus Christ and then when the resurrection happens, you're going to get your new resurrected body. Sorry to disappoint you. The Bible does not teach soul sleep or whatever doctrine you're trying to teach. It doesn't teach that. All right. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. That's about all I have for you today. Um, I sure hope you heard something helpful. I know I certainly did. And uh, remember, this is not goodbye. This is just a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. Until next time, I hope it made you think.